good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The high-stakes debt ceiling deal faces its first test in Congress. Watch as the White House calls for support, while some Republicans vow to kill it even before it gets to the floor. Five people are still unaccounted for. Two days after an apartment building collapsed in Iowa, the city plans to demolish the building soon. Texas lawmakers close out their legislative session with a bill aiming to end equity and inclusion programs on college campuses. How are people reacting? Elon Musk takes a trip to China, hoping to expand Tesla's presence there. Find out what this could mean for his business as well as for China and the U.S. And China turning down a U.S. proposed meeting between the two nations' defense chiefs. Why won't the Chinese regime let the U.S. Defense Secretary talk with his counterpart in Beijing? The debt ceiling agreement struck between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is facing its first test in Congress. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao. Iris, why are some lawmakers challenging this deal and what is it facing in Congress? Good evening, Tiff. So as we're speaking right now, the House Rules Committee is set to vote on this very high-stakes bill because it is facing a lot of challenges in Congress. And as we know, this bill, as it currently stands, will raise the nation's debt ceiling for the next two years while capping some of the non-defense programs at its current levels. But it will also prevent cuts to Medicare, Social Security, and other veteran programs. And we know that it's also going to claw back some unspent COVID money as well as cut new funding for the IRS, as the Republicans have been insisting. But we do see that a lot of hardline conservatives in the Congress are voicing frustration, saying it doesn't go as far as they wanted, especially when it comes to targeting some of the Democratic legislation that President Biden has been pushing. For example, the student loan plan that Biden has been pushing, it did not affect that. So this deal is facing a lot of criticism, especially among the House Freedom Caucus members that we talked to today. And I asked him today, what about the risk of actually encountering a default? Watch. What's your message to some Americans who might be more worried about a potential default? What this bill does is lead to an eventual complete default of the United States. That's what it does, and, and that's why we're opposed to it. We have the ability to not, to not allow it to come to the floor. So it's a bad bill for the Republicans. Honestly, it's a bad bill for the Democrats because it's a bad bill for America. So they're basically urging all other Republicans to vote no on this bill. And basically, if it does not get through the House Rules Committee, it's not going to even get to the floor, let alone becoming law. But we are also seeing progressives on the other side of the aisle also voicing frustration, saying that it's a compromise to Republicans' demands. But the White House today basically defending this deal and saying that at least it avoids a default and therefore it's a win. Watch. It's an agreement that not only prevents the first ever default in this country, but it will protect our hard-earned and historic economic recovery. So when we talk about catastrophe, since we have not seen it, have not felt it, I think people think it's a little hyperbole. It is not. 
So all eyes are on this very highly watched vote going on right now to see if this very important bill will make it even through the House Rules Committee. But also the House Republicans will hold another press conference at 8.30 Eastern Time tonight. And at that press conference, we'll, we'll be hearing from the leadership about if this agreement can get through the House and maybe becoming the law in the future. Tiff. Iris, thank you for that. We'll be checking back in with you tomorrow for more updates. And Speaker McCarthy today warning FBI Director Christopher Wray. It's about the bribery scheme allegedly connected to President Biden. The California Republican said he might hold Wray in contempt of Congress. That's if he misses today's deadline to turn over subpoena documents to Congress. The clear threat against Wray comes after House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer indicated last week that he may hold the FBI Director in contempt. Republicans are seeking a form about a bribery scheme allegedly involving a foreign national and President Biden. Now, we have more updates on the apartment building that partially collapsed on Sunday. Officials in Davenport, Iowa, say there could still be people inside the building. In a press conference on Tuesday, officials in the city of Davenport, Iowa, gave the latest update on the apartment building that partially collapsed Sunday afternoon. At this time, we have five individuals that are still unaccounted for. Two of those we believe to be possibly still in the building. We understand that this is an unthinkable situation, especially for the families that are involved and impacted um, by this event. A woman was rescued from the building Monday evening after she called her family and waved for help. City officials have previously said there were no known people left inside. This prompted the city to reassess the possibility of additional searches. It's the opinion of the structural engineer that any additional search operations in the area of that pile of debris should be avoided due to potential collapse. We are currently evaluating the risk assessment of where we can go back into that building to do this other search. We're very sympathetic to the possibility that there's two people. The city is facing criticisms for planning to demolish the building too quickly. The mayor said the city is trying to do so while maintaining the dignity of people who may have been killed. A relative of one of the missing pleaded at the news conference for people to understand the city's plans. I plead with our community just to let the city do their job. Right now it is an absolute no-win situation, but this is the best plan of attack. The 116-year-old building had 53 tenants and about 80 units. No fatalities were reported so far. It remains unclear why the building collapsed. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Texas looks poised to ban diversity, equity, and inclusion in colleges and universities as lawmakers end their legislative session by approving the bill. NTD's Arlene Richards gets reactions from both sides. Both houses of the Texas legislature gaveled out on Monday with some historic votes, including a vote on Sunday that bans diversity, equity, and inclusion in colleges and universities. The controversial bill is now sitting on Governor Greg Abbott's desk waiting for his signature. If he signs the bill, Texas will become the second state to make this ban a law. It would effectively ban colleges and universities from using state funds to design and administer DEI programs. 
Some Texas students and professors spoke out against the bill. Texas Students for DEI, a grassroots movement, said in a statement to the Texas Tribune, our lawmakers fundamentally misunderstand the role of DEI in reconciling a longstanding history of systemic exclusion in Texas's institutions of higher learning. DEI represents a dedication to create and maintain an open and supportive environment for all students, regardless of background. Texas professor Jen Ebeler said in a Twitter post, Nobody was compelled to say or believe anything. It's always been about merit. DEI has nothing to do with affirmative action. This was in response to Senator Brandon Creighton's statement in favor of the bill. He said today marks a victory for citizens' right to free speech under the First Amendment. Texas universities end our commitment to fostering true diversity and merit in higher education. I spoke with policy experts from the Heritage Foundation and the Texas Public Policy Foundation for their thoughts on the bill. Giving everyone an equal chance to succeed, making sure that every individual student gets the help that he or she needs is the right way to go. Not treating people by identity group and presuming that because you have a certain identity, you have a certain viewpoint. We understand that racism exists and sexism exists, and these are still things that must be challenged. But the core belief that white supremacy permeates every aspect of American life is what DEI is based on. And this bill will close down the offices that push that belief. If the bill becomes a law, higher education institutions will be required to certify their compliance before spending any state funds. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Elon Musk back in the headlines, this time with a trip to China. As for what this visit signals to the business community in our pocketbooks here at home, we sat down with John Powson, former chief convergence officer for British Telecom and author of Wireless Wars. John Powson, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Good to be here, Tiffany. Elon Musk is in China. He's meeting with China's foreign minister, Qin Gan. They're talking about U.S.-China relations. China is a huge market for Tesla. And there have been two different statements coming out, right? One is that, oh, the U.S.-China relations are inseparable, like conjoined twins. And Elon Musk is also saying they don't want Tesla to decouple. How should we read all of this? Well, look, Elon Musk is all about innovation, and he's about business. So he looks at the China market. China bought, I think, just under 7 million electric cars last year, biggest market in the world. Musk sold about 800,000 cars uh, in the U.S. He's looking at uh, a market 10 times bigger than what he's got otherwise. And, uh, you know, he's going to say what he has to do to make sure he can secure access to the Chinese market for his cars. And it seems right now there's some like geopolitical tensions, especially between Beijing and the world. How does his visit there impact that? Well, you know, he's he's looked on as a somewhat of a heroic figure all over the world, uh, maybe more elsewhere than in the U.S. right now, where there's more uh, controversy on it. Uh, but like, for example, he made a statement. I think he tweeted it uh, that China's rocket program is far ahead of where the rest of the world seems to think it is. Well, for a country that doesn't have Twitter, that tweet is everywhere in China right now. Elon Musk says we're ahead of where they all think we are. They're so proud to hear this genius billionaire saying that about them. Uh, so China's looking to that uh, with 
with pride. I'm sure he wasn't saying it to play into their. Well, I suspect he wasn't playing, saying it to play into their hands in Curry favor. But uh, you know, maybe that was part of his uh, his charm offensive as he's heading in there to try and build his business in China. And on that note, John, it seems he's been expanding Tesla's manufacturing in China. This comes as many other companies are maybe pulling out or looking elsewhere. This also comes after a lot of raids on U.S. companies like Bain and Group and Mintz. What might happen to Tesla going forward? Yeah, this is look. This is a really, really smart guy. You can't argue that Elon Musk is a smart dude, and he probably figures China's not going to get the drop on him. They're not going to get the better of him. But Bell Labs had a lot of smart people in that company, and they got their clock cleaned by China. The the problem is Musk thinks of everything in terms of innovation and business, and he's really, really good at both. And he thinks they're not going to be able to beat me at this. China's not playing that game. This is a game of, of hegemony, world influence, and domination. And Musk can, can win his innovation game against China, but if they get in the end, what they want, which is uh, reliance, dependency on China, uh, influence on American companies of great importance, uh, China can get what it's looking for here. I mean, they I don't think they can get access to SpaceX or Starlink through the Tesla operations, but there's no question they get access to the company that controls it and the people that control SpaceX and Starlink. They can have influence. And, and have leverage on him and his companies. And that's where the, the worry for me really comes. If he's really killing it in China, selling a lot of cars and buying a lot of batteries and inputs, you, you don't want the, the guy who's making the rockets that, that are sending us to the moon and Mars to have any uh, undue influence from China. It seems in terms of Tesla, Tesla is competing with a lot of Chinese automakers. But in the U.S., there's this push for electric vehicles, green energy, and China dominates that sector. So with Elon Musk's visit here, how will that kind of relationship impact American consumers going forward? It's kind of funny. Uh, China's battery company, I understand he was meeting with the CEO while he was over there, CATL. They are not even the biggest battery supplier Tesla. It's good to see that Panasonic has that role. I think Samsung may be the second biggest battery supplier, uh, but they would like to change that. They would love to get the battery business uh, in the hands of a Chinese vendor. CATL is by far the world's biggest supplier for electric vehicles in general, just not with Tesla. And I think America would do well to keep them at, at arm's length as far as possible. You know, even in my home state of Virginia, Governor. Yunkin took a lot of political heat for blocking a big CATL battery factory from coming into the state. I think it was the right thing. This is not uh, this is not a, a source of uh, technology exchange. This is just again an infiltration by China into into markets that they're trying to get a foothold in. Seems like with that in particular, a lot at risk is business and national security. But John Pelson, thank you so much. It's great being here. It's official. Beijing is turning down Washington's request for defense talks this weekend. We take a closer look at the details and the Pentagon's reaction. A thumbs down from Beijing. China has rejected a U.S. proposal for a meeting between the two nations' defense chiefs. The Pentagon earlier requested that the U.S. defense secretary meet with his Chinese counterpart at a security forum in Singapore this weekend. China's defense chief Li Shang-Fu has been on Washington's blacklist for over five years. 
the Trump administration sanctioned Li in 2018 over purchase of Russian arms, including an Su-35 combat aircraft and an S-400 surface-to-air missile system. In response, China says that there will be no open dialogue as long as those sanctions remain in place. Despite the refusal, the Pentagon said it won't stop Washington from maintaining open lines of military-to-military communication with Beijing. But getting the Chinese regime to talk is no easy task. A top U.S. defense official illustrated the challenge when it comes to reaching the Chinese side. Admiral Aquilino is the man overseeing America's Indo-Pacific Command. Here's what he said at a panel last week. There is a technical connection via the defense telephone line that could be used. Now, that said, uh, if there were an event, I can tell you I would pick up the phone and dial it. Uh, I'm not sure anybody would answer it on the other side. He added that he's repeatedly asked to speak with his Chinese counterparts, something Beijing hasn't approved. Coming up, are Russia and Ukraine trading attacks? Eight drones struck the capital of Russia this morning following Moscow's relentless bombardment of Kyiv. And dozens of NATO troops were injured as they clashed with protesters in northern Kosovo. The protesters were trying to stop a newly elected official from taking office. That and more when we come back. Welcome back. We turn now to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Moscow was hit with a rare drone attack this morning. This came after the Kremlin launched another round of airstrikes against Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. NDD's Sam Wong brings us the details. A rare drone strike hit three residential buildings in Moscow early Tuesday, forcing residents to evacuate their homes. According to the Russian Defense Ministry, the attack involved eight unmanned aerial vehicles. Five of them were shot down and the navigation system of the three others were jammed, causing them to veer off course. Though the attack brought little damage and zero casualties, two people sought medical attention for unspecified injuries but did not need hospitalization. Russian President Vladimir Putin blamed Ukraine for the incident, calling it a terrorist attack committed by the Kyiv regime. As you know, the Kyiv regime has chosen a different path, the path of attempts to intimidate Russia and Russian citizens with attacks on residential buildings. This, of course, is a clear sign of terrorist activities. A top aide to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky denied the accusation, but said that he was pleased to watch. The incident marks the second drone attack targeting Moscow in less than a month. Meanwhile, in Ukraine's capital, Russia made its third assault on the city within 24 hours, launching a relentless wave of daylight and nighttime bombardments. The Kyiv military administration said that more than 20 drones were destroyed by air defense forces in Kyiv's airspace. Following the attack, one person died and three were injured when a high-rise building caught fire. In response to the incident, the White House said that it's still gathering information on the reports of drone strikes on Moscow, while reiterating that the U.S. does not support attacks inside of Russia. Sam Wong, NTD News. Protests in northern Kosovo have left dozens of NATO troops injured. Kosovo police say the situation in the region is fragile but calm. NTD's Jason Perry breaks it down. Protests in northern Kosovo became violent on Monday. 30 NATO troops and 52 protesters were injured in clashes outside a municipal building in northern Kosovo. Residents of the predominantly Serbian area of Kosovo don't want the newly elected Kosovar Albanian mayors to take office. 
The Albanian mayors were able to win the April elections in the Serb majority areas because the Serbs decided to boycott the elections just two days before the vote. They said their demands for more autonomy had not been met. So with only 3.5% voter turnout, Albanian candidates won the elections in four Serb-majority municipalities. Protesters attempted to block the newly elected mayors from entering the buildings as they clashed with Kosovo police and NATO troops. A local Serb politician blames the Prime Minister of Kosovo, Albin Kurti, for the situation. Serbs do not have problem with Albanians. We are facing the problem with the regime of Albin Kurti, who is doing everything to make chaos here and to create chaos for Serbs, Albanians and all of them. And the Serbs were not the only ones who thought the Albanian mayors should not have forced their way into the offices in the ethnic Serbian municipalities. The United States and its allies condemned the move as well. On Tuesday, troops with NATO's peacekeeping Kosovo force, also known as K-4, stood on guard outside a municipal building in Leposevic in northern Kosovo. And local Serbs held a peaceful protest nearby. Kosovo's prime minister added this. Our police and K-4 are the border between violent extremists and peaceful institutions. In the last few hours, our institutions have intensified communication with international partners to an even greater degree because we have the common aim of calming the situation. Kosovo police said in a statement that the situation in the region was fragile but calm. And Jason, can you please give us a little background information on the situation between the Serbs and Albanians in Kosovo? Sure. Thank you, Tiff. <clears throat> um, the situation in Kosovo can seem a little complicated for those who don't know about this East European nation. This uh, Kosovo basically used to be a province of Serbia, but with the help of NATO forces in 2008, Kosovo claimed its independence, but Serbia still does not recognize Kosovo's independence. So Kosovo is made up of a majority of ethnic Albanians, but there's still a minority of Serbian, uh, ethnic Serbians that live throughout Kosovo, but mostly in northern Kosovo. And up till now, they have normally participated in these elections and had their own Serbian mayors. Um, but this time, just a couple days before the election, the, the main party, the main Serbian party in northern Kosovo called Serbian List, asked the Serbian community to boycott this election. And they're asking for more uh, autonomy, basically, in their, area, in their area. And they pointed to a deal brokered by the European Union in 2013 which would allow basically an association of um, autonomous municipalities in their area <clears throat> where they could basically self-govern themselves. But the Kosovo government currently rejects that idea, saying it would be, it would be like having a mini-state within our state. And so that's where we stand now. Thanks for explaining that. So how long do you think these protests in northern Kosovo will last? Um, just given the political division that has been there for so long, it's kind of hard to, to predict. But currently we have um, Kosovo peacekeeping forces that are there with NATO troops, which is also called K4. So right now they're stabilizing the situation. And so far it's been peaceful today. Nothing too extreme happened today. But the NATO, um, NATO has just announced that they're going to send 700 more NATO troops to Kosovo. And they're also putting another battalion of troops on high readiness for just in case things may uh, get worse in the future.
So that's all I have. Informative report, Jason. Thank you. Thank you. And looking to Africa, President Biden is calling for the government of Uganda to do away with a new law that makes serial homosexual activity, as well as transmission of HIV-AIDS through homosexual activity, a capital offense. In a statement, Biden called the law a tragic violation of universal human rights and said he would evaluate the implications of this law on all aspects of U.S. engagement with Uganda, including the delivery of aid. Republican Senator Ted Cruz also called the law horrific and wrong. Uganda's president has urged lawmakers to resist what he called imperialist pressure. The country's information minister said they disagree with the West, saying homosexual acts are not a human right and that they follow their constitution. The law itself does not criminalize merely identifying as LGBTQ. The U.S. is sanctioning individuals in China and Mexico. The entities are being accused of enabling counterfeit fentanyl-laced pills. We sat down with former ICE Special Agent Victor Avila, an author of Agent Under Fire. Victor Avila, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me back. The U.S. today slapped sanctions on 17 people and entities based in China and Mexico. That's for their role in the fentanyl fentanyl epidemic. How do these sanctions help end this epidemic? Well, uh, first of all, i got to say it's a good step forward by this administration uh, to do these uh, and impose these sanctions, uh, something that I've been calling for for a long time. Uh, and it's a good step forward. It doesn't, in my opinion, go far enough. Uh, these are sanctions against certain individuals <clears throat> and certain businesses, but it's, they're not sanctions against the governments themselves. That's where I think with the administration would be a, a much bigger impact if you actually place sanctions on the government of Mexico and, of course, the government of China, because we know that they're, they're both in connection, responsible for that fentanyl coming into our, our country. And on that note, the Treasury Department is saying it also has a, another team going after the money laundering involved in this whole process. How much of that traces back to China in particular? It's all connected to the money, and, and this is a, a, good, a good place to be focused on. As a, a narcotics agent, you know, uh, you learn quickly that uh, you don't uh, focus only on just trying to seize the narcotics or the illegal drugs, but to go after the money. And this is where you hurt the cartels. This is where you hurt the, the criminal organizations by seizing their assets, uh, uh, freezing a lot of their assets, their bank accounts, their, their properties and such uh, that are basically coming through illicit activity. And this would be a, a great uh, way, an indicator to put a dent at least on, on holding them back a little bit because the cartels are making billions of dollars with the fentanyl and obviously with the human trafficking as well. But once you start hitting them in the pocketbook, that's going to make a big difference because these cartels operate for power and money. So you start taking the, the money away, you eventually will take away the power as well. And Victor, there is also the huge cost just to human life. The CDC is saying last year over 100,000 died due to overdoses. And the Treasury Undersecretary saying a lot of that is lace, goes back to fentanyl-laced pills. So. What really should and can the U.S. be doing to really end this? I would love to see a, <clears throat> a big uh, public service announcements throughout the country. You know, I was on the border not so long ago and listening to the Mexican radio stations, and I heard a commercial 
uh, on the Mexican radio stations about how dangerous uh, these uh, fentanyl pills are that are in the market. You know, six out of every 10 pills in the United States are laced with fentanyl. And that's according to the Drug Enforcement Administration. They're counterfeit pills. And not just the pills, but we have uh, marijuana and other drugs being laced with fentanyl and xylazine and other things, other substances. And so uh, I'd love to see that public display and warning to our youth, especially on, on university campuses and our schools, to really make everyone aware and the households, the parents, to make this a discussion, an everyday discussion of how dangerous it is and the position that we are, that even if you're experimenting and have never even used drugs before, you are now playing Russian roulette with your life. But, uh, you know, these deaths uh, are obviously directly responsible back to the cartels in China who provide the chemicals and the precursors and, and the cartels for uh, distributing all around the United States and bringing in through the open southern border. So uh, what's one of the solutions is to designate these cartels as foreign terrorist organizations. And expanding on that a little bit, what role does social media play in all of this, either good or bad? I think we would actually, uh, you know, uh, the, you see social media, TikTok and, and other apps have a, obviously a large impact and influence on our youth. Uh, we could use that. We could definitely use that impact where you see the uh, pop-up ads uh, come up in these uh, uh, in these apps to inform our, our, our children. I mean, uh, that's one of the ways that we could communicate that we can't ignore. You know, a lot of the families, they know that every these kids are on the phone all the time. So let's reach them to where they have access and they have access on those phones. Let's send those messages to them. Let's tell them and listen, this is what you're up against, whether uh, whether uh, even starting at a younger age, uh, what, what grade of school you're in, to really tell these uh, kids, this is what's out in the real world. This is what you might experience. And this is what might happen to you. In this case, with fentanyl, you're looking at possible death. And not only just a high rate of, uh, of addiction, and, and that's another problem that we have to talk about, but we have to come at them and let's come at them through the social media and use it to our advantage. Victor Avila, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. While the European Union is pushing for sustainable energy, European wind turbine manufacturers have a cautionary tale about relying on China's rare earth minerals. Entities France correspondent David Vives talked to a policy analyst who says China has backed EU countries against the wall. The Netherlands trade minister on Sunday said that Europe won't be able to transition away from fossil fuels without China. G7 leaders last week agreed to de-risk their relationship with China by importing critical raw materials from other countries, while European Union ministers on Friday backed a similar policy adjustment. European manufacturers are concerned it may not work out. Author and policy analyst Fabien Bouglet says Denmark's iconic turbine manufacturer Vestas is the perfect example. Denmark is in a lot of trouble because the main western wind turbine manufacturers will soon be unable to produce any more wind turbines because of this tension on the rare earths market controlled by China. The world's top three turbine manufacturers all suffered heavy losses in 2022. Vestas lost $1.68 billion, General Electric $2 billion, and Siemens Energy $950 million. This was caused by a halt in the supply chain. Bouglet says this is due to China's monopoly over rare earth minerals. 
China has done the same thing with solar panels. You can buy Chinese solar panels, but China has imposed a ban on all materials used in the construction of solar panels. In other words, you can no longer buy the raw materials used to build solar panels, or the raw materials used to build wind turbines, especially rare earth minerals, which are crucial because they are difficult to obtain, especially for offshore wind turbines. It's a geopolitical weapon. Above all, the aim is to be the leader. They've become the world leader in solar panel production. They've acquired the market, and now they want to become the world leader in the manufacture of wind turbines. China is expected to supply the majority of rare earth minerals for turbines this year. In other words, Europe will be more dependent than ever on China to get the materials. And it's not just for wind energy. Europe's push for electric car production and other renewable energies means manufacturers need more and more rare earth minerals. Bouglet says it's very likely the EU won't be able to develop sustainable energy by relying on China. You can see that, on the one hand, we have an extremely strong lobby pushing for an energy transition in Europe. But on the other hand, we also have an economic war by China, which wants to impose the sale of its own wind turbines. And in any case, at the rate things are going, we have, as China doesn't want to export materials either, to allow competitors to design and manufacture its wind turbines. Europe is unlikely to succeed in developing a renewable energy industry in the next 10 years. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up, Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes begins her 11-year sentence in a Texas federal prison. A judge denied her request to delay the sentence while she appeals her conviction. And writers in Hollywood are getting support for their strike. Now union members are rallying with the writers as they demand higher wages. That and more on NTD News. Welcome back. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes starts her 11-year prison sentence today. A court denied her request to delay the sentence after she was convicted of defrauding investors and patients with her startup. After heading a now-failed blood testing startup once valued at $9 billion, Elizabeth Holmes will begin serving her prison sentence on Tuesday for defrauding investors. U.S. District Judge Edward Davila set the date on May 17th for the 39-year-old to begin serving 11 years and three months in prison at a women's prison camp located in Bryan, Texas. Holmes rose to fame after claiming Theranos' small machines could run an array of diagnostic tests with just a few drops of blood. She was convicted of fraud at trial in San Jose last year. She had asked the 9th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals to pause her sentence on April 25th two days before she was originally to report to prison. The court denied that request. Davila had previously rejected her argument that the appeal is likely to result in a new trial, which would have given her a chance to remain free on bail. Prosecutors said during the trial that Holmes misrepresented Theranos' technology and finances. Holmes testified in her own defense, saying she believed her statements were accurate at the time. Holmes co-defendant, former Theranos president Ramesh Belwani, was convicted of defrauding Theranos investors and patients at a separate trial and was sentenced to 12 years and 11 months in prison. His requests to remain free on bail were also rejected. 
Forbes dubbed Holmes the world's youngest female self-made billionaire in 2014 when she was 30 and her stake in Theranos was worth $4.5 billion. Union members are now rallying in solidarity with striking riders in Los Angeles. They say they support strikers' demands for living wages amid inflation. Here's the latest. Hundreds of union members rallied in downtown Los Angeles last Friday in a show of unity with striking riders. Organizers said the participating unions represented more than 200,000 workers with collective bargaining agreements also due to expire in 2023. The union represented members from the tourism and hospitality industries, teachers, logistic workers, and public employees. Uh, I don't think the end of 2023 is going to be the end of it. I think that right now we're seeing the rise large in a labor movement in America since the 50s, and it's only going to continue to grow as long as workers aren't being given safe working conditions, fair wages, and being able to live in the country that they work in. So as long as workers, whether or not they're union, are getting a fair share, we're going to continue to see a labor movement happen. Those rallying in the crowd said they felt the union's show of support and solidarity. You know, these corporations, the CEOs change, change with the seasons. And, you know, for us, it's like we, we put in the work and the time and the effort into making shows and films really great. It's, it's about time that they pay up. You know, it's about um, fairness. And I think it says a lot about L.A. You know, L.A., it is a union town. You know, we do have powerful unions. And that's also how we're able to live and survive and ultimately hopefully be able to thrive in this economy. The Writers Guild of America stopped working on May 2nd after failing to reach an agreement for higher wages with Hollywood studios including Disney, Netflix and Warner Bros. Organizers said all of the unions had universal demands for livable wages amid rising food, housing and transportation costs. Many also raised concerns about the increase in AI technology and online streaming. It's kind of just hitting how everybody's feeling right now, where like everybody's feeling like they're getting eaten alive in a certain way. Our guild is really well organized, really well resourced, and it's right in this moment of AI and all this other stuff. It just feels like we're a, the first collective of artists that can come together and really push back against AI taking over everything without anybody doing anything. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents major studios, has said it offered, quote, generous increases in compensation to writers. No new talks between the two sides are scheduled. It's not easy to run a small farm in the U.S. Small farms face stiff competition, are less tolerant of poor weather, and many have gone bankrupt. However, one family farm has figured out a way to stay small. Let's take a look. Fairy Farms, a small farm with 2,000 acres in Litchfield, Michigan, has been around for over a century. Scott Ferry and his wife Ellie are the fourth generation of the Ferry family to own and run the farm. I love food and I love sharing food with people and the opportunity to plant the crop that feeds the animal and bring that to the plate of a person and share it with them felt a lot closer to the goals that I think we have. Fairy farms used to raise hogs, cattle and sheep and produce dairy products. But after taking over the farm from Scott's dad in 2008, Scott and Ellie experienced economic challenges. 
you're selling your finished good at a wholesale price, you're paying retail for everything, and it just financially is hard to be sustainable on a smaller scale. In 2018, the ferries closed the dairy operation due to high costs. USDA data shows that dairy businesses were profitable only one year out of the last 10. But during the COVID pandemic, the ferries saw a new trend. When consumers couldn't find meat in the grocery stores, they turned to local farms. And it was a dramatic increase in our ability to, to service our community. And that, that was that was a warming feeling for us. We could actually feed the people right here locally in which we live. The ferries began focusing on raising cattle and directly selling to consumers. But soon, they hit a roadblock, a long-term USDA-inspected meatpacking capacity shortage. We were working with six different processors throughout the state. We spent a lot of time on the road and logistics, moving product from place to place, just trying to get capacity. Um, we said no to sales on that business because no one had the processing capacity. Many other small farmers faced the same issue. So the idea of building a meatpacking facility became apparent a year and a half ago. This was born out of the desire to assist other small farmers in some ways that they could still be relevant and financially sustainable as a family farm. The ferries and investors raised $3 million to build a USDA-inspected meat processing facility, Carnical Foods. The facility has state-of-the-art equipment and a daily capacity of 5,000 pounds. It provides co-packing, private labeling and flavor development services. It makes it substantially simpler from a distribution standpoint, for, um, from a warehousing standpoint, a storage standpoint. Um, the timing and the freshness of the product and being able to get it here in our facility and work on you know, a timeline that is conducive to the farm and the products that we want to produce, that's been a huge upswing. From growing the cattle crops to direct selling to consumers, the ferries have built a vertically integrated supply chain from farm to table. Instead of just being a part of a commodity in industry that's now globalized, we just became further and further disconnected from our food in that space. So by shrinking this down to something that we could produce food directly to the consumer, it felt a lot more rewarding. The ferries' business approach has allowed them to sustain the small farm life they love. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Litchfield, Michigan. Coming up in baseball, an emotional return to the mound after months of chemotherapy. Entity's Dave Martin brings you the saga of White Sox reliever Liam Hendricks. And we bring you the unusual sport of cheese rolling. Runners in the UK test their speed and agility as they chase down a steep slope after a huge hunk of cheese. That and more after the break. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a report on how fans' eyes are now focused on South Florida. That's right, Tiff. The Heat really never let Boston get on a run last night, and now Miami, and really the South Florida region, have a team in the NBA and NHL Finals with the Florida Panthers already in. Now, no city has ever been champs of both sports at the same time. The New York came very close back in 1994 with the Rangers and Knicks. 
The Heat and Panthers actually share similarities beyond their hometowns though. Both are the lowest seeds in their playoffs, both had to slay the team with the best record in the first round, and both nearly swept their conference finals opponents. I'll grant that the Celtics forced their way back from a 3-0 deficit, unlike the Carolina Hurricanes that went down 4-0 to Florida. But both will have their work cut out for them next round. The Heat will have to find a way to slow down two-time MVP Nikola Jokic, who carved up the Lakers and Anthony Davis in the last round. Meanwhile, the Panthers' opponent is the Las Vegas Golden Knights, who are the only team that has yet to play an elimination game this postseason. Now, neither squad is a favorite, but that hasn't stopped them thus far. And in baseball news, there's plenty of stories of players recovering from injuries, but Liam Hendricks' saga isn't your normal one. After noticing a swollen lymph node on his neck last year, the Chicago White Sox closer was eventually diagnosed in December with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. Hendricks, who's been an all-star three of the past four seasons, endured multiple rounds of chemotherapy before getting to ring the victory bell on April 5th, signaling his cancer-free diagnosis. He then made six appearances for Chicago's minor league team before making his emotional season debut last night complete with several standing ovations. And moving on to your sports viewing schedule tonight. No NBA or NHL playoffs, but we have a full slate of baseball games as all 30 teams are in action, including the Tampa Bay Rays, who will start leading Cy Young candidate Shane McClanahan against the Chicago Cubs. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, over to you. And turning now to a somewhat unusual English tradition, cheese rolling. In the annual competition in the UK, runners chase a seven-pound hunk of cheese down a very steep hill. And the winner gets to keep the cheese. NTD's Malcolm Hudson was there. In the idyllic English countryside, hidden in the woods, hundreds of people gather for... <laughs> cheese rolling. A seven-pound wheel of cheese is released down the incredibly steep hill and dozens of people hurtle after it, sometimes flying through the air as much as the cheese itself. People come from all across the world, like this man from Tennessee. So you've just uh, run down the hill. How do you feel? Oh, it's exhilarating. It was so much fun. Historical records for this extreme sporting tradition date back at least 200 years, and it's believed to be around 600 years old. There are multiple races throughout the day, and the winner of each race wins the cheese. And uh, how do you feel having won the race? Uh, we're excited, <laughs> but I can't I can, I can eat cheese. <laughs> we can't eat cheese. The world-famous event went ahead despite safety concerns from the local council. There are often injuries of one kind or another. A sports team catches people at the bottom of the hill. They say they've been doing it for 10 years. Yeah, they come down at some pace, right? But we're used to it, so. Yeah, it's good fun. You see all the people running down, you get a good view as well. It's always good, especially as there's thousands of people here. So, yeah, we just put our shoulders on the line and smash them, really. They also help people who have been hurt. Stewie Hendry sets the races and comes dressed for the parts. This hat's like 14 years old. It's like living a dream. I can't believe it's still together. <laughs> I wash it this year. My wife's like, why have you still got that? <laughs> This old tradition means a lot to the locals. And for everyone involved, it's good old-fashioned fun. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.